You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, episode 44, and I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back, everybody. Today, I thought we would dive into another meditation, rumination, whatever you want to call it, by Ryan Holiday, author of many books, but one of my favorite books of the last several years is The Obstacle is the Way. Wonderful book. I love it. Very practical, very helpful. I recommend it to everybody. It's available on Amazon. And the article from dailystoic.com is informed by that book, especially the anecdotal story that he relates to tie together the topic. And so today, uh, if you want to support the podcast, you can do that by sharing with family and friends, subscribing, and of course, you can go to Anchor FM to the Warrior Priest Podcast main page and hit that support button. That'll take you to PayPal, and that helps me take care of the cost of software and hardware and all the other resources that I use to put together this podcast. That would be wonderful and much appreciated. Otherwise, let's just dive right in today. I'm going to read a lot and talk very little. So if that's what you like, then congratulations. Today is your, your day. This episode's for you. And again, this is by Ryan Holiday, entitled, A Crisis Can Make You Better, But Only If You Have This Mindset. Before he was an oil man, John D. Rockefeller was a bookkeeper and aspiring investor, a small-time financier in Cleveland, Ohio. The son of a criminal who'd abandoned his family, the young Rockefeller took his first job in 1855 at the age of 16, a day he celebrated as quote-unquote job day for the rest of his life. All was well enough at 50 cents a day. Then the panic struck, specifically the Panic of 1857, a massive financial crisis that originated in Ohio and hit Cleveland particularly hard. As businesses failed and the price of grain plummeted across the country, westward expansion quickly came to a halt. The result was a crippling national depression that lasted for several years. It was a situation similar to what we are in today with COVID-19. Business closed, the stock market plummeted, and bankruptcy skyrocketed. Rockefeller could have gotten scared. Here was the greatest market depression in history, and it hit him just as he was finally getting the hang of things. He could have pulled out and run like his father. He could have quit finance altogether for a different career with less risk. But even as a young man, Rockefeller had Songfreud, unflappable coolness under pressure. He could keep his head while he was losing his shirt. Better yet, he kept his head while everyone else lost theirs. The more agitated others became, biographer Ron Chernow wrote, the calmer he grew. It echoed what Marcus Aurelius wrote in his meditations nearly 2,000 years before, quote, Be like the rock that the waves keep crashing over. It stands unmoved, and the raging of the sea falls still around it. And so, instead of bemoaning this economic upheaval, Rockefeller, like Marcus, observed the momentous events. Almost perversely, he chose to look at it all as an opportunity to learn, a baptism in the market. He quietly saved his money and watched what others did wrong. 
He saw the weaknesses in the economy that many took for granted and how this left them all unprepared for change or shocks. The same choice we have in front of us today. From the first crisis he experienced, Rockefeller internalized an important lesson that would stay with him forever. The market was inherently unpredictable and often vicious. Only the rational and disciplined mind could hope to profit from it. Speculation led to disaster, he realized, and he needed to always ignore the, quote, mad crowd and its inclinations. There is always a countermove, always a way through, a path is always there for those willing to look for it, then take it. It was this intense self-discipline and objectivity that allowed Rockefeller to seize advantage from obstacle after obstacle in his life during the Civil War and the panics of 1873, 1907, and 1929. As he once put it, he was inclined to see the opportunity in every disaster. To that, we could add, he had the strength to resist temptation or excitement, no matter how seductive, no matter the situation. For the rest of his life, the greater the chaos, the calmer Rockefeller would become particularly when others around him were either panicked or mad with greed. He would make much of his fortune during these market fluctuations because he could see while others could not. This insight lives on today in Warren Buffett's famous adage to, quote, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. Rockefeller, like all great investors, could resist impulse in favor of cold, hard, common sense. Was he born this way? No. This was learned behavior. And Rockefeller got this lesson in discipline somewhere. It began in that crisis of 1857, in what he called the school of adversity and stress. Quote, Oh, how blessed young men are who have to struggle for a foundation and beginning in life, he once said. I shall never cease to be grateful for the three and a half years of apprenticeship and the difficulties to be overcome all along the way. Or, as another Stoic, Epictetus, said, The true man is revealed in difficult times. So when trouble comes, think of yourself as a wrestler whom God, like a trainer, has paired with a tough young buck. For what purpose? To turn you into Olympic-class material. Of course, many people experienced the same perilous times as Rockefeller. They all attended the same school of bad times, but few reacted as he did, without the pestilence of panic or fear. Few had the discipline in perception to see clearly that there is a proper course of action in every situation. Not many had trained themselves to see opportunity inside this obstacle, that what befell them was not unsalvageable, not unsalvageable misfortune, but the gift of education, a chance to learn from a rare moment in economic history. A rare moment much like we are in now with COVID-19. The stock market has lost 30% in the past month. The U.S. government announced an unprecedented $2 trillion bailout package. Many people will face real crisis. Many will not emerge from the other side stronger. We can see disaster rationally, 
or rather like Rockefeller, we can see opportunity in every disaster and transform this crisis into an education, a skill set, or a fortune. Seen properly, everything that happens is a chance to move forward. If we are able, one, to be objective, two, to control emotions and keep an even keel, three, to choose to see the good in a situation, four, to create opportunities, five, to exercise patience, six, to take advantage of the mistakes less disciplined people make, seven, to steady our nerves, eight, to embrace the present moment, and nine, to focus on what we control. As many have said, we are living through history. It is up to you if you will see this as just a crisis or as an opportunity. Will you lose your emotions or remain calm? Will you focus on playing the blame game, feeling sorry for yourself, or on your response? What will you do next? That's the question. Desperation, despair, fear, powerlessness, these reactions are functions of our perceptions. You must realize nothing makes us feel this way. As the Stoics would say, events are objective. Our opinions make them positive or negative. We choose to give in to such feelings. Or like Rockefeller, Marcus Aurelius, or Epictetus, choose not to. And it is precisely at this divergence between how Rockefeller perceived his environment and how the rest of the world typically does that his nearly incomprehensible success was born. This is your opportunity to develop your own cautious self-confidence, to perceive what others see as negative, as something to be approached rationally, clearly, and most important, as an opportunity, not as something to fear or bemoan, so will you choose a live time or dead time? Will you choose to use this time as an opportunity or as an opportunity to be afraid and bemoan your current condition? It's always that choice to tackle everything from staying active and strengthening your relationships to revitalizing your daily life during this pandemic or sitting down giving up and lamenting your lot in life. But you have the choice to turn the obstacle into an opportunity or to use this opportunity as an obstacle to prevent you from moving forward. Those are the two choices in front of each one of us every day, regardless of whether there's a pandemic or not. Something that I noted in my meditation this morning was that what we often lose track of during crises is the rock-bottom truth that we all have shared in common. And that is that many people will perish from the coronavirus. Many more people will be killed by the flu, car crashes, starvation, IEDs, diabetes, you name it. But regardless of how each one of us dies, what we can learn from all of these instances is that we are all born into this world with a pre-existing condition. It's called mortality. That is, 
We are all born dying, and we will all die. Some will die before they ever leave the womb. Some will die as they exit the womb. Some will die when they're babies or children. Some will die as adults. No authority, no expert can save us from this condition. Mortality is a terminal illness. And we can wash and scrub and clean. We can do everything in our power, everything in our, within our abilities to protect ourselves from SARS or the bird flu or Ebola or COVID-19 or whatever the next pandemic will be. But it doesn't change the fact that we all die on a certain day at a certain time from something that is completely out of our control. So then the question becomes, do we take this knowledge, embrace the reality that we're all mortal, that we're all finite, that we have our limits, and that those around us share the same condition? They're finite, they're mortal, they're not gods any more than we are. Do we, again, use that opportunity to throw up obstacles in front of ourselves that we perceive life to be a series of obstacles and therefore what is the point of trying because in the end we're all going to die anyways? Do we become fatalists or nihilists because of this? Or is the obstacle our opportunity to improve our situation personally or in our relationships, at work, whatever it may be? Do we use these times when other people are panicked and fearful and anxious? Do we fall in with them? Do we get sucked into that vortex of noise that amplifies fear and anxiety? Or do we simply look around us and say, okay, the coronavirus is real and it is affecting people's lives in a real way. Maybe it's affecting your life in a very real way. Maybe you've contracted it or you know someone who has. But what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that knowledge? Right now, the big thing, of course, for those of you listening, it's May 3rd, 2020, is the question of masks, wearing masks. Do wearing face masks help? My wife is a healthcare professional. She'll tell you, no, it won't prevent you from breathing in the virus. It depends on the type of face mask you wear. It depends on what you expect it to do for you. But also, as many immunologists are now publishing, you're inhaling carbon dioxide at a, a higher rate when you wear a face mask. Regardless, those who work and wear face masks, they're breathing in more carbon dioxide. Those of us who choose to wear a face mask or are required to wear a face mask when we go into a business, you're breathing in extra amounts of unhealthy air. It's just a fact. And therefore, uh, let's say, let's say I do a test today that other people aren't doing regarding face masks. In order to live healthy, we must breathe the correct atmospheric oxygen. That's 19.5%. You can look all this up online. But in order to be healthy, we need to have an oxygen atmospheric level of about 19.5% to about 23.5%. So somewhere, in, let's just say we'll round up 20% to 24%. That's basically how much oxygen we need in the atmosphere to live. Now, OSHA requires a confined space environment to maintain this atmosphere, or you must remove yourself from the environment immediately. 
So anything below 20% and anything over 24% is dangerous for us to be in. So you need to get out of there. So we breathe in that O2 in two places, our mouth and our nose, right? This is obvious. Both of which are confined then by a face mask when we wear a face mask. The atmosphere inside a face mask was not meeting the lower 19.5% oxygen levels that make the mask dangerous actually to you as an individual and to your health. So if you take an industrial MSA air gas monitor and you test three face coverings, each one mask using, used as a face mask, right? And then you insert that gas mo monitor wand inside the mask. Here's the results. If you wear a double layered handkerchief, the oxygen atmospheric inside that is 17.5%, 2% below what you need to be healthy. If you wear a half face respirator with two valves and particulate filters, 18%. Again, below what you need for healthy oxygen levels. N95 with a single valve, that mask, 18%. So these face coverings that are being recommended are actually depleting oxygen to your brain and is immediately dangerous to your life and your health. And the reason is gas exchange is not happening fast enough inside the mask and you are breathing too much CO2 that's expended. So I use that example because one, it was shared with me and two, it's kind of fascinating just to go down that rabbit hole and kind of nerd out on stats for a second. But all of these things that the so-called experts are recommending and people are panicking, and since the experts are saying, wear a face mask, it'll protect you. It turns out if you just do the test, you can do the test at home yourself with the right equipment, and it's, it's readily available online. You'll discover that what the experts recommend you do is actually unhealthy for you and a threat to your life. So imagine saying to an adolescent, whose lungs aren't fully developed, or an elderly person whose lungs may be compromised for one reason or the other, you need to wear this mask at all times. You're not helping them. Well, maybe you're helping them avoid COVID-19, but you're actually threatening their life and their health by depriving them of the necessary oxygen that they need to thrive. What do we do then? Well, we take that information then at, in this example. We make an educated decision based on the statistics and the data that we have available to us. And we say, all right, you require that I wear this face mask when I'm here or when I'm there. And I'm more than willing for the sake of other people to wear it at this time. But if it's mandatory that I wear this at all times, I refuse to wear it because I'm going to think for myself and I'm going to make decisions for myself. And whereas others may listen to the experts and uncritically and unthinkingly adopt this measure or simply say, well, it's mandatory, so we have to do it. We can take a step back and say, well, wait a minute, your perception of events is such that it leads you to be afraid and to panic and therefore to accept whatever is said to you by so-called experts, and you just do it uncritically. And then you say, well, anybody who doesn't do it is threatening public health. Well, the facts of the matter are, face masks are a threat to public health when worn all the time because they deprive us of oxygen and they multiply the amount of CO2 that we're breathing back in within the context of wearing a face mask. So this is the challenge, I think, anyways. This is the challenge every day for myself when I interact with other people is they'll say one thing and I'll ask them where that information came from or why they're doing this. And they'll say, well, I was watching the news or the governor said or the president said or this expert on TV said. Well, what makes this expert an expert, first of all? Second of all, I know in some cases you have doctors who haven't practiced medicine in over 20 years talking about what we should or shouldn't do to 
boost our health and wellness. And then an immunologist will come out and say, actually what that doctor just said is detrimental to your overall health and life. It's a threat to your life. Don't listen to that doctor. So there's a lot of this swirling around. That's why I use that example. There's a lot of this swirling around in the media, a lot of this swirling around in just conversations that I have with other people. So what are you to do? Well, like Epictetus or Marcus said or Rockefeller recognizes, we train ourselves to not react without thinking so that when people are fearful and are not willing to invest in something, what do we do with that information? Do we just sit on it? Do we allow it to influence us without taking that step back and observing? Is this real? Is this helpful? Is this vital to our life? Or am I simply going along with this because everyone else is doing it? So when people are afraid, do we move forward boldly? And when people are rushing forward boldly, do we take a step back and go, well, wait a minute, before we get, before we get into this and we start rushing forward, shouldn't we stop and make sure that we're not rushing over a cliff? Just because this person is leading the charge doesn't mean that we automatically should fall in line behind them. I think that's the key point for me is that we are tempted quite often to treat leaders and experts like they're God, like they're gods or godlike in their wisdom or in their abilities when they're just men and women like us. It just so happens that they happen to have gone in, into virology or immunology. They just happen to have gone into politics. But is a 73-year-old farmer less wise in the ways of the world than a 48-year-old politician? Well, I guess it depends on the farmer and the politician, doesn't it? Likewise, in my travels, I've met eight-year-olds who were, had more wisdom than 80-year-olds because of the life that they had lived up to eight years old. So I think what I see quite often, right now anyways especially, people watch TV too much and listen to the people on TV too much and don't think for themselves and don't observe reality for themselves, but rather allow themselves to be influenced and then their perception of reality gets warped. Think about it this way too. One to three percent of the total population of the United States is on Twitter. And yet listening to the news, listening to politicians, listening to the influence that that one to three percent of people on Twitter has on pop culture and on the cultural conversation, you'd think most of the United States is on Twitter. But yet the influence of those loud, shrill, shrieking, assertive people on Twitter carries over into politics because those people that serve in national politics and even state politics are so far removed from the everyday events of your life or my life that they go on social media and they read those tweets and they get feedback from their advisors who are also on social media and they get caught in this echo chamber. And they think that what happens on Twitter and what's said on Twitter is a reflection of reality when it's not. Social media is not reality. And yet you see the influence in movies and TV. You see the influence in our cultural conversations. And yet to step back from that and say, well, I'm not on Twitter. I don't participate in Twitter. People will look at you, especially younger people will look at you like you're an old fuddy-duddy, like you're a dinosaur. Because, well, that's where the conversation's happening. For you it is, yes. But for me and for other people that I hang with, we're not on Twitter. That's not a part of our conversation. It doesn't inform our dialogue. Because we see it as being detrimental to our overall mental health and well-being. 
And it's okay then, for myself anyways, it's okay to go on Facebook once in a while, but I went on Facebook too much on Friday, got sucked into the vortex of memes on Facebook, and by the end of Friday, I was so angry and so wound up because I allowed myself to get sucked into that vortex, and I had allowed myself to get angry, and now, if I get to the end of the night, I'm just sitting there saying to my wife, oh, I just want to burn something down. You just, you get so angry so incensed at the injustice and the unfairness and the moral evil of leaders and experts and you don't know their motives and you don't know who they're working for and you don't know why they're saying what they're saying and this other voice over here contradicts that and this doctor seems reputable but then another doctor comes along and says, no, that guy's a quack and so forth and so on. It becomes overwhelming. And maybe that is what plays into an overall atmosphere of of fear and of anxiety is that we don't know who to trust and we don't know who to listen to. And half the, it seems like half the culture wants to shelter at home and tell the governor, say it's okay to come out. And the other half says, let's storm the Capitol with weapons and protest. But where's the middle? Where's the conversation to be had? Where's the nuanced conversation, the layered conversation to be had? Is it on social media? Well, according to Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, my answer would be definitely no. But is it happening then culturally? Well, not really, because we're not allowed to gather together in groups of more than 10 or 12. And yet, I think if you want to have the conversation, and you recognize that the obstacle is an opportunity, at least for myself, I can, I can reveal that I have not, uh, what do you want to say, sheltered at home these past six, seven, eight weeks. I have not been an obedient citizen of my uh, state because, and I'm going to talk about this in the midweek debrief, but there are certain things that I need in my life. There's certain things that I need to do that define me as a human being that actually make me feel like a whole person. And when you take those things away from me, it diminishes me and I can actually feel myself beginning to wither. <coughs> Excuse me. And so it's not a matter of whether I want to obey the governor's shelter at home order or not. I am willing to do that so long as it affects the public good and it influences the public good. But when it starts to influence me negatively and I see others being negatively influenced by it as well, and I take into consideration what it's doing to uh, my immune system by sheltering at home and not being out in public, what it's doing to me to not be outside and active, especially now that the sun is out and it's warm, we can get into our gardens, we can work in our flower beds, we can enjoy our parks and our hiking trails and our jogging trails. We can go hiking in the mountains and we can go out in the woods, we can go fishing on the lakes. Like all of that contributes to our overall health and well-being, not only as individuals, but as a society, in my opinion. And to take that away from us lessens us as a society because it lessens us, it weakens us as individual human beings. I think that's a large part of what's happening now, too, with the fear and the anxiety and how people are choosing to act out. Whereas I chose at the very outset to say, I'm going to be responsible, I'm going to be an adult, but I'm also going to exercise my freedom and my rights as a U.S. citizen to move about my community in such ways that I can continue to function as a full human being at 100% to the best of my ability. And that means that I will continue to train. It means that I will continue to exercise and take care of myself. It means that I will do what I need to do to be satisfied. Not only for myself, but then for my family and for those in my community so I can serve them. Which means the thing that I love, the thing that 
allows me to express myself creatively, express my emotions, express myself physically and intellectually. The thing that I love that I discovered when I was 45 that I could point to and go, that's what makes me me. I can't stop doing that because I could, like I said, I can actually feel myself starting to wither when I don't do it for a certain amount of time, about two weeks. So I have trained in private and I've done it on the down low because there's no need to advertise on social media. There's no need to virtue signal about, well, I'm doing this because I'm not doing it to get other people's approval. I'm not doing it so that other people can say, well, Donovan's doing it, so we're going to do it too. He's leading the charge. That's not my point. My point is for myself, I need to do this for my health and well-being and therefore for the health and well-being of others who I engage. And I think that's the thing for me is to observe reality, observe the world and ask myself the question, I'm being told one thing over here, but I'm seeing another thing over here, which is true a person's perception of reality and then how they try to influence my perception of reality or my observation of reality, observation of myself. And who do I know better than myself? And so do I'll listen, but I'm going to think critically for myself and I'm going to question the authority. and I'm going to question the experts and ask, what is it that qualifies you to speak on behalf of all of us? Or what is it about you that qualifies you to tell me what is the best for me? How can you say that I'm safe going to Costco or Home Depot or Fleet Farm, but I'm not okay going to a small business? That going to my gym, I'm, I'm in, in danger of contracting COVID-19, but if I go to Costco where there's over 300 people, I'm, I'm safe over there. In my opinion, that's absolute nonsense and it's not based in any facts whatsoever. And then that's, that's how I do it. I take that step back and I ask, how am I best serving myself and how am I best serving my community? And is there that thing that I do, that I've discovered, that I love, that I can't stop doing no matter what, whether anybody's paying attention or not, whether I have one person to do it with for the rest of my life or not, that thing that I love, can I stop doing it for a short amount of time? Sure. But what happens? Again, I start to wither I start to become diminished as a human being. I don't feel myself. And when I don't feel myself, it affects my relationships. It affects the way that I engage with my daily routine and schedule. And so I think what more and more people, I hope what more and more people discover during this time of pandemic is that there is an opportunity there and that the obstacle is the way. It's a door, not a hurdle, not a wall. Rather than say, well, every opportunity is an obstacle. No, every obstacle is an opportunity, you, but you have to struggle. That's the point. The struggle is, is the key. And for me, that's jujitsu. It's mixed martial arts. I can't not train Muay Thai. I can't not train jujitsu because it's what makes me me. And, you know, in a sad cliche way, it completes me. For Jerry Maguire fans, you know exactly where that reference comes from. And it also proves how old you are. But there are certain things that we all discover in our lives, hopefully. And if you haven't yet, please go find it until you, you know, go search for it until you do. But I was watching The Bones Brigade. It's a documentary about skateboarding in the 80s and early 90s. I highly recommend it. Stacey Peralta is a great uh, documentary filmmaker. He made Dogtown and Z-Boys, which is one of my favorite documentaries, if not my favorite documentary. 
But in the Bones Brigade, they're talking about when the when the demand for skateboarding crashed in the early 80s and there were no more contests and skate parks were being torn down. They started building skate ramps in people's backyards and they would just get in a van and just drive across the country from California to Nebraska just because they heard there was a skate ramp and they could have a competition there. And then they'd drive to Wyoming or they'd drive down to Florida or they'd drive back to California or wherever they had to go to skate, they'd do it. They didn't do it for the money. They didn't do it for the fame. They didn't do it because they were screaming fans there. They did it because they loved skateboarding and they had to do it because to not do it made them sad and depressed because they, that's, that's how they expressed themselves. That was their art was skateboarding. It was what allowed them to be a part of a tribe, a part of a, a fellowship of brothers in arms. It allowed them to push each other, to excel, to be better than they thought that they could be or that they knew that they could be, but ultimately allowed them to express themselves. This was their art, and they loved skateboarding, and they couldn't stop doing it no matter what. So they would drive from California to Nebraska to skate in someone's backyard because they had to. It's not because they, they wanted to. It's because they had to. And for me, that's the opportunity in this crisis right now is to discover for myself and, and maybe for, for you, you've gone through this. There's certain things that I want to do that I choose not to do for the sake of my community and my neighbors to protect them and keep them healthy and safe. But there's this thing that I have to do. I don't want to train. I have to train. I don't want to put on my wraps and, and my gloves I don't want to put on my rash guard and, and my shorts. I have to. I have to roll. I have to spar. I don't care if no one knows I'm doing it. I don't care if I never win another trophy or medal. I don't care if I ever stand on another podium. I don't care if there's an audience watching or not. I don't care if anybody knows. All that matters is this is how I express myself this, through this art that I love. And then having gone to art school and having gotten an art degree and never really being satisfied with being a painter or a sculptor or a printmaker, never being fully satisfied with being a guitarist or a bass player or a percussionist or a saxophone player or a flute player or a brass player, which I did too. None of that ultimately satisfied me, even though I loved doing all of it. And it wasn't until I discovered jujitsu Muay Thai, specifically jujitsu, that that art fulfilled me. It completed me. It defined me as a human being and it defined reality for me. So that I can say as a Christian, my baptism is my identity. Baptized child of God is my identity. But my what defines me as a human being is jujitsu. What defines me as a human being and what defines life then is this art, this martial art. And if you take it away from me, I will find some way to do it because I can't not do it because I'll die if I don't. And if you haven't found that thing that you love, maybe that doesn't make any sense to you. Maybe I sound selfish and I'm fully willing to accept that. But if you have that thing that you love, that you don't do it because you want to, you do it because you have to, and it doesn't matter where or when you do it or how you get to do it, you just have to do it, then you totally understand what I'm saying. And I use that then as an example right now during this, this pandemic to say, yeah, there are certain things that we think we need, but they turn out they're just wants and we can live with or without them. But there's other things that we need because we love them and they define us as, as people and they define reality for us. And those are the things that we can't give up. So if anything, 
the obstacle, my gym closing down, my teammates being scattered all around the metro area, what it's done is it's forced me to locate the people that I trust to train with, the two people that I trust to train with, and who share the same passion, the same love for the art that I do, who need it as badly as I do, who recognize the need, and we find a way, whether it's in someone's garage or someone's backyard or wherever it might be, we find a way that the obstacle of sheltering at home, the obstacle of COVID-19, the obstacle of the business being shut down, these are opportunities for us to say, okay, but how do I get to do the thing that I love? How do I get to do the thing that defines me as a human being? I'm going to make a way. I'm going to create the opportunity, and this is how I'm going to do it. So I'm going to wrap it up there, and I hope that helps. Uh, Come back on Wednesday for the midweek debrief. I'll talk a little bit more about this whole matter of love and need and talk maybe about the Bones Brigade a little bit more. But uh, thank you so very much for, for listening and supporting the podcast. Thanks for all you do to promote it on social media. I truly appreciate it. I do. And we'll see you next week for a brand new episode. Peace.